I want to talk to you this morning a little bit out of uh, Daniel chapter 3. And this is the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We could hardly let this pass by. <laughs> As we talk, I want you to keep in the back of your mind that we're going to be having communion this morning together. And the things I'm going to say... I want you to, to kind of integrate into your understanding of communion and what communion is all about. Communion is an expression, it's a reaffirmation of our confidence and our trust in Jesus, in his plan, in his purpose, and his will for our life. It's a time for, as we reaffirm what he has done for us, and he, as we reaffirm the effect of what he has done. In other words, what's going on in my life now based on my trust in Jesus' death on my behalf? That I really do trust him regardless of my present life circumstance. As I shared earlier with you in prayer, there are things that happen to us that are terrifically confusing. Don't seem to make any sense. I think everyone is, every one of us at one point or another have said, why, God? Why me? Why this? Why now? And we wrestle with these dilemmas. We wrestle with these questions. We try to live righteously. We try to do everything because in our mind we think if I do this, then God is going to bless my life. But I seem to get grief for all of my faithfulness. That's a typical legalistic works mentality. That's what we typically always fall into. We lose sight of the fact that we are not our own. We've been purchased with a price. We reaffirm that truth when we receive communion. The price is the life of Jesus. God paid that to get us, to rescue us from the domain of darkness so that we might be transferred to the kingdom of his son. So we don't belong to ourselves. And it's not our agenda that's on the table. It's God's agenda. And, and we have said, Lord, you take my life. You take my life. You use my life. You use me. I'm available to you. Isn't that what it's all about, really? And so this morning, we're going to see something that reflected in this biblical account and as well reflect on it for our own life and uh, regain perspective because it's very easy to lose perspective. And it's very easy to focus on what we want, what we think we deserve rather than saying, Lord, your will be done, not mine, your will be done. And strengthen me, give me courage to engage your will. Because very often the, the, the things that happen to us have a tremendous capacity to pound away at our faith if we allow them and to diminish our faith. And the enemy's greatest tool against us is discouragement. Discouragement. If he can just get us discouraged, he's got us immobilized, and we are worthless. So I want you to bear that in mind as we, 
as we think and look towards communion in just a few moments. Read with me from Daniel chapter 3. Now the context, as you'll see, is one in which King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of the Babylonian Empire. Now the southern tribe of Judah, as you well know now, have been carried off into captivity. Uh, The whole land of Israel now has been decimated. The ten northern tribes are absolutely dispersed, destroyed. The southern tribes are in in, uh, Babylon in captivity. Jeremiah has been carried off to Egypt where he dies. Ezekiel is in uh, uh, Babylon. Daniel is in Babylon. In the midst of all of this, God is still faithful to his people. He's disciplining them. He is training them for the future. He is still faithful to his people. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful world leader ever to have lived on the face of the earth. The reason we can say that is because of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and he had Daniel interpret the dream. Do you remember the dream? The head of gold and so forth. And the head of gold, the the very top part of the statue, was Nebuchadnezzar and was the Babylonian Empire. It's the most powerful, the fiercest empire ever on the face of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest of all the worldly rulers. And so in an effort to solidify his hold on all of his conquests, solidify the hold on all the people, he calls all the leaders of the people together and they're going to, he's going to cause them all to worship this image that he has created. Now it harkens to the, to the future when if you read in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about uh, Babylon, talks about one world, a one world leader, talks about a one world religion. And it doesn't do it by accident, but it's hearkening back to this time when Nebuchadnezzar, who was a significantly powerful one world ruler, invoking a one world religious practice to solidify his hold on those people and his conquest. That's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to cause everybody to take the mark of the beast, the little barcode, you know the little barcodes, things that, that are on your, on your things you go to the supermarket? Everyone's going to be required to have a barcode. Every human being will be numbered. And that's a, that's a, a, a sign on, on you that you have committed yourself to worship the beast. Tremendous things. And so we see a foreshadowing of this here in this passage. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And so all these people assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So he's going to have this huge dedication ceremony. They, they're coming. They don't realize that they're going to be caused to worship it. It kind of sneaks up on you. And then as they're all standing in front of this huge image, 
The herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, because there were representatives uh, of every language group and peoples on the earth at that particular point in time in the Babylonian Empire. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. In other words, as soon as you hear the sound of the music, that's, that's your cue. Everybody bow down and worship this thing. You're commanded to do so. He says, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Well, that's interesting. Uh, would you bow down? Would you be tempted to? Do you think there's much peer pressure here? <laughs> Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the music, all the peoples, nations, men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Imagine yourself in this huge crowd of people, and all of a sudden you hear the command, this is what we're all to do. Oh, the music starts, and all of a sudden you see bodies falling down. What would you do? Would you stand there? Would you fall down? What do you do today in the presence of peer pressure? Do you go along with it? Or do you resist it? Most of us go along with it. Most of us keep our mouth shut. Most of us don't go against the flow. We have this t-shirt in the bookstore. In fact, I was looking, my wife has one. I was looking at it this morning in our closet. And it, the picture is all these fish going one direction, this one fish going the opposite way. It says, go against the flow. The church is not just to be a subculture. The church, is, the church is to be a counterculture. We're to go the opposite way of the world. We've been talking about this for the past several weeks, haven't we? But far too many people in the church already are going with peer pressure. Are not willing to stand, not willing to say, no, wait a minute, this is wrong. No, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. So if you can understand the effect of peer pressure on your life now, imagine when your life is at stake, not just a mere worrying about somebody laughing at you, somebody making some jeering jokes at you. Imagine when your life is on the line. But see, a slight problem develops when all the people bow down because there's three guys who do not bow down. Three guys, three young guys, who are disciples of Daniel. Now, Daniel's not around. There's no mention of his presence anywhere. He's maybe off. Remember, he's, he's a, a very, very high official now in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has given him a, a, a place of significance. He's probably off on some kind of official business, so he's nowhere to be found. No mention of him. And I think that's wonderful. Because here's three guys who are his disciples who are given an opportunity now to demonstrate what? Their faith. Their trust in God. They're given an opportunity to take a stand. And their leader isn't around. What do we do now, guys? Well, we do what Daniel taught us to do. Honor God. Obey his commands. That really is encouraging to me because of Daniel's lack of presence. So they're not going to bow down. We're told that this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. So they're reminding the king of his command. Now there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now what's going on here? Are these people just jealous? Are they saying, oh, look at those guys. They're, they're not doing what you said. Is it just a matter of these, these astrologers being jealous? Is it a matter of uh, them really being concerned? What's, where's the issue here? Where's the real battle going on? Is it just one people against another people? Is it one segment against another segment? No. There is a spiritual warfare going on. The battle is going on in the heavenlies. It's the false gods and the demonic powers behind those false gods against the one true God being played out on the human scene. The battle is not just in this context, this earthly context. I talked with a couple not too long ago who came to me after a service and they, they just couldn't seem to get it together. They were constantly fighting, constantly arguing, constantly in an accusing mode. Do you know what that means? Well, you, you, you. If you would just do this, and if you would just do that, if you'd stop doing this and stop doing that, then I would be better. Can anybody relate to that? A couple of you? Okay. Oh, guy raised his hand and his wife pulled his hand right down. <laughs> that was good. I saw that. When we talked and they were still in this accusing mode, they didn't know how to break out of it, and I called their attention. I said, do you understand what's going on here? I said to the husband, it's not what she is or isn't doing. I said to the wife, it's not what he's, he, or he is or isn't doing. It's that the, the enemy is inciting those things in your life, those deficits in your life, and he's, he's, he's making them larger and larger and larger. And he's causing you to look to the other person with an expectation that the other person should fill this huge gap in your life when they don't have the capacity to fill this huge gap in your life. I said, what are we supposed to do? I said, what would happen if you started praying together? What would happen if you started saying, Lord, Lord, our lives belong to you. Show us some new and inventive ways that we can bless one another instead of cursing one another. Understand that the enemy is attacking your marriage. He's attacking, he wants to tear this marriage apart. He wants to tear this testimony he does not want there to be a testimony of the living God in your house. And he doesn't want there to be a testimony to pass on to your children that there's a living God in heaven who you honor in spite of the circumstances so that your kids will grow up going, wow, wow, God is awesome. My parents loved God, trusted him. And I saw them work through some tremendous things. I saw them learn how to take these issues to the Lord. Well, this couple 
looked at me, almost incredulous. Pray? Yes, it's come to that. <laughs> Pray. Pray. I talked to a man last night after the service who came and confessed to me that he's been not getting along with his wife, fighting with his wife, arguing with his wife. I said, when was the last time you prayed for her? When was the last time you took her in your arms and just prayed for her? When was the last time you blessed her? When was the last time you just held her and prayed for her? He hadn't in quite a while. I said, what do you suppose would happen what do you suppose would happen if you just took your wife in your arms and began to pray for her on a daily basis? Do you think it would have any effect at all? <laughs> I just wanted to do a little test. How many, how many wives do we have here? Uh, now, gals, you keep your hand up. If you think, just if you think, it might make a slight bit of difference in your life. If your husband would embrace you and pray for you and pray blessings in your life, would it make a difference? Now, if you're really convinced of that, wave your hand. Did you wave your hand, any? <laughs> I know. The battle is not just at this level. You've got to understand there's another battle going on. And these astrologers are incited to accuse the brethren. So they go to Nebuchadnezzar. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage. He summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Is it true? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Is this really true, this report I've heard? Now he's going to give them a second chance. He says to them, now look, when you guys hear the music, if you're ready to fall down, worship the image I've made, excellent. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Would that intimidate you? Would that make you think? Now you got to know the furnace is on fire right there next to him. It's blazing away. Nebuchadnezzar says, see that furnace? If you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in it. I mean, try to put yourself in that scene right there. You're going, that is hot. <laughs> I mean, after all, I mean, what's a little bowing down? What's a little compromise? It doesn't really hurt after all. I mean... God really knows that I don't want to die. And is it really going to be, what purpose is it going to serve for me to, to waste my life that way? Do you ever rationalize? It's easy to rationalize, isn't it? And then he says this, Nebuchadnezzar says this. Look at this next sentence. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, I want to submit to you that that's coming right out of the pit of hell. That sentence comes right out of the pit of hell. Right through Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, the devil himself is speaking. As he speaks to every one of us, 
when we're in a threatening situation, when we're at one of those forks in the road where God presents us with a choice, and sometimes the choice is so difficult, do I continue to honor him or am I going to go do what I think? Am I going to lean on my own understanding or am I going to acknowledge him? And the devil's right there blowing in your ears, say, come on, God's not going to rescue you. You're going to go down. Oh, it's going to fail. It's threatening. And you're scared to death, and he's increasing your fright, right? You ever had that happen? Oh, gosh. Oh, I know what the Bible says. I know what God says, but, but I feel so insecure. See, God tries to train us to walk by faith. He gets us out there where we really don't have but those two choices. And how many times we revert to doing that which is expedient, that which we can accomplish, rather than going God's way, obeying God. And all the while, the devil's blowing our ear. Oh, no. You do that, you're going to fail. It's going to, oh, oh. You know, you're going to look like a fool. You're going to, don't do it. Right? You've got to know the devil does not want you to obey God. He does not want you to grow in faith. He doesn't want you to trust in the Lord. He wants you to continue to trust in your own devices. And so he's going to, at those moments of crisis, when, the, when you're standing there facing the blazing furnace or safety, safety, I'm going to do it safe, When you're getting biblical godly counsel that says, trust God, go this way, and it's too scary, and you're going to choose safety. It's like the devil is really going to aggravate that. Work hard to convince you that that's the way you should go. So Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, they say to him, we will not bow down if our God saves us. All right? Is that what he says? What does he say? He doesn't say, we will not bow down if our God saves us? That's what we say. We say, God, you take care of all the details up front, and, and as soon as I see all my fleeces answered... As soon as I'm absolutely confident, then I'll take a step of faith. Not before. It's like Abraham. God said to Abraham, come on, follow me. I'll take you to a place I'll show you when we get there. I want you to walk by faith. I mean, if, if I were Abraham, I'd say, time God, time out. Where are we going? How long is it going to take to get there? Can we go down to the AAA office and get one of those maps with a green line on it that shows where I turn and when I turn? And... You know what I'm talking about? Most Christians today, sadly, have a perverted view of their relationship with God. Most Christians today look to God as their celestial chum, as their divine servant 
Most Christians today are, are demanding that God meet their needs and meet their wants. Rather than saying, wait a minute, I'm the servant. I'm the servant of the Most High God. I've given my life to Him. My life is in His hands. He bought me with a price. I'm here to serve Him. He's not there to serve me. And so when He calls us, we're to say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. I'm available. That is tremendously challenging. That is tremendously difficult for all of us. Is it not? And we don't just get up and walk by faith. We don't just do what God says. Because we have to figure out logically how this fits in to our agenda. And if it doesn't fit into our agenda, guess what? It doesn't get done. Now they don't say, God, if our God rescues us, we won't bow down. Nor do they say this. Even if he doesn't rescue us, well then we'll go find another God. I mean, if I don't get my needs met here, I'll go over here. If my agenda doesn't get met here, I'll go over here. There are lots and lots of people who have who've been sucked away from the church by the cults because in the church they've either been taught wrong or they've had a faulty foundation in terms of their understanding of what God's agenda is and what the Bible is all about, what the Christian life is really all about. The Christian life is not a victorious life. The Christian life is a hopeful life. It's a hopeful life. And not, ho not hope in the sense of, well, I hope this happens and I hope that happens. <laughs> Hopeful in the sense that we are confident in God regardless of the circumstance. You are my hope. I have this hope in me as an anchor of my soul. It's a hopeful life. I'm hopeful. I'm confident in God. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen today in terms of the details. God does. And my hope and my confidence is in Him. And as I keep reaffirming that, so, that, that reality to myself, as I keep rehearsing that, then I begin to understand it more and more and more and, and able to live it out. No, they say this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves. We don't mean to be disrespectful, but we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter to you. When we would be, tend to be all kinds of defensive, right? Well, but, but let me explain. You see, you don't understand, and we do this little dance. And all the while, the other person is going, oh, more excuses, more excuses. And Christianity becomes a mockery when we offer excuses, when we defend ourselves. We don't need to defend ourselves. God's our defender. We need to take a stand for the faith. We need to defend the faith. And that's exactly what they do. They defend the faith. We do not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us from it. 
and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. O great King Nebuchadnezzar, we worship the one true God, the living God, the God who is Lord over all the heavens and the earth and, oh yes, and Babylon in your life, which you'll find out in the next chapter. That's who we worship, and he is able. He is mighty. He's the real God. He's not like your false gods that have to be carried around by men. He's able to rescue us. Isn't that glorious? Now the next phrase is just tremendous. This is real. This is a this is a solid faith. But even if he does not rescue us. Oh gosh. I was afraid of that. Even if he does not rescue us, we will not. O oh, king bow down and worship your idol. We won't do it. Even if he doesn't rescue us. Even if I die. Wow. That's faith. That's being a hero of faith. It's easy to be a hero of faith when things are going well. It's easy to praise God and say, oh, hallelujah, when things are going well, isn't it? But how about things when things ain't going well? And you're praying your brains out. And you've even fasted. And you've even put away some pet sin. And things still don't change. In fact, they get worse. You go, what's the use? You ever thought that? What's the use? And the temptation to give up, the temptation to quit is really strong. God is not there, the enemy is saying. And you say, you're right. I may as well give up. You see, that is only a testimony of where you are in your faith. And God has got to bring you to that realization. And you may not get rescued the way you want to get rescued. Are you going to still remain strong? Are you still going to say, Lord, I praise your name anyway. I bless you anyway. It doesn't matter anymore. I know that you are faithful. I am confident that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed my prayer. They prayed my prayer. Daniel must have taught it to them. What's my prayer? Every morning before I get out of bed, Lord, it's you and me today. It's you and me today. I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know the details of today, but I know you do. It's you and me today. Prepare me and equip me that I can engage whatever it is that you allow into my life today. Keep me a faithful man today. And that's exactly what they do. 
Nebuchadnezzar now is really furious with them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now think about this for a minute. Does this make sense? <laughs> you kind of lose perspective when you lose your temper, don't you? What effect is this going to have to happen? I mean, what's the, what's the deal about heating this furnace seven times hotter? It's only going to cook them that faster. I mean, if he really wants the satisfaction of seeing them suffer, really wants to get their revenge on them, then you'd think he would just cool this, the thing down a little bit so they would suffer and take them longer to die. So sometimes when you're really furious, you, you think irrationally. I'm going to make it even hotter. Good. I'll cook faster. <laughs> he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Here's three young guys. He's got some of the strongest soldiers to tie these guys up. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them up and threw them in. Can you imagine that? Here they are. Tie these guys up. All right, we're going to throw you in the furnace. They throw them in the furnace, and they die. They die. I mean, that ought to be a huge statement to Nebuchadnezzar. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Certainly, O king. There were only three. He says, well, look in the fire. I see four. They're walking around in there. And not only they're walking around, they're not tied up anymore. And they're unharmed. They're not burning up. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Who's that fourth one, do you suppose? Well, I'd like to think it's Jesus. No, one's, no one knows for sure. Nebuchadnezzar later on says there, there was an angel in there with him. There's no clear statement of who it was. Of all the writers that I read trying to figure out and find out who this was in there, no one seems to have any conclusive proof. I would like to think that it's Jesus. Jesus did say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In the midst of the fire, we're not alone. In the midst of the furnace, we're not alone. Even if it looks like we're going down, we're not going down alone. He will not abandon us. I love the story of Stephen in chapter 7 of Acts when Stephen is being stoned and he's giving his testimony. He's talking about the Lord. And all of a sudden, he's on his knees, they're stoning him, and he looks up the heavens part, and who does he see? Jesus. Jesus standing up, ready to receive him. He's not alone. So Nebuchadnezzar is utterly amazed. He approaches the opening of the blazing furnace and shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of who? <laughs> what did he say up in that previous sentence? What God will be able to rescue from my hand? What a testimony. Servants of the Most High God, come out here. Walking around waiting for permission for the king to call them out. 
When's he going to do? When's he going to call us? So they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, nor, he said, there was no smell of fire on them. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I don't know. It's pretty tough. Pretty tough to believe. You sit down with the average person in the street, and you read that to them, what are they going to say? They say, oh, that's just a story. That didn't really happen. Everybody knows that if you're in a furnace, you're going to die, let alone come out and not even have the smell of smoke on you. It's a powerful testimony. God rescues them powerfully. Does he always rescue that powerfully? No, he doesn't. Let me read to you from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 is the great hall of fame of the heroes of faith. And we read about Abel. We read about Noah. We read about Abraham. We read about Moses. We read about all these great heroes of faith. We're told about the Israelites who, by faith, walked through the Red Sea Yet the Egyptians who were drowned by it, by faith the walls of Jericho fell. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. He goes on in verse 32 and he says, What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Tremendous things God has done. But then he goes on in the very next breath and he says, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground people that God apparently didn't rescue. There are two ways to go. There are are two possible outcomes, aren't there? Two possible outcomes, and we'd like to have the, the first, the glorious, oh, God, deliver me from the fire and let me come out and have a powerful testimony. But what if God doesn't deliver you from the fire? Do you still have a powerful testimony? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. God does not leave himself without a witness. And though you may look at your life and your circumstances and say, this isn't much of a witness, you don't know who's watching your life. You don't know who God has turned that person's head and caused them to observe what's going on in your life and watching you suffer unjustly. 
You don't know. And as you endure patiently, as you say, Lord, I trust you anyway. I'm going to obey you regardless. I'm going to find out your will and I'm going to do it. Yes, you do have a testimony. You do have a testimony. He says, these were all commended for their faith. Whether they were rescued marvelously or they were not, they were all commended for their faith. He goes on in chapter 12 and he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Every one of us has a race that's marked out for us. Every one of us has our own lane that we're running in. Every one of us. And my race is different from your race. Your race is different from my race and someone else's race. And yet we're so prone to looking around at everybody else's race and say, I want to run in that race. I want to run in that person's lane. I don't like my lane. No, God has marked out for us a lane and a race to run. And he means for us to run that race. And we're exhorted here by this great cloud of witnesses. Great numbers of people have gone before us. Now it's our turn. They pass the baton to us. And they, and they say to us, okay, now your turn. Run, run. But, but I don't like this race. <laughs> you don't have to like it. Just run it. Just run it. No one's asking you to like it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, that means Jesus had through vision. He could see through his present dilemma. For the joy set before him, he disregarded the shame of the cross. He knew he had to run this race. He knew he had to do this course. But he knew there was something set before him. He saw through the present trial to a joy that awaited him. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The enemy wants us to grow weary. The enemy wants us to lose heart. The enemy is doing all he can to discourage us and to point to our circumstances and get us to focus on our circumstances and say, look at, look at how you can't trust God. You can't depend on Him. Don't pray anymore. See, it doesn't help. Run the race. Run the course. Look at Jesus. Look at this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Sure, God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He may rescue you, but even if he doesn't, what is it going to do to your faith? How is it going to affect your life? What are you going to do then? Peter said to Jesus, after everyone had left Jesus, Jesus turned to him and said, are you going to leave me too? Peter says, you have words of life. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? 
I shared with you a couple weeks ago how God is working to crack that shell of self-sufficiency and to break through into our lives, to reduce us to a place of utter dependency on Him. And some of us, it takes a lot longer than others. And you never really know when you arrive. Do you know that? It's a constant process of breaking and humbling because our human nature doesn't go down without a fight. Jesus said, if you'll be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me daily. He says, if you're going to seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. That's the constant tension that all of us live with. If you read on in the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar makes a great proclamation. He says, anyone, anyone who profanes the name of the God of Meshach, or of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whoever defames his name, whoever profanes his name, he'll be cut into pieces. <laughs> and his house reduced to rubble. God says, I will not hold anyone guiltless who profanes my name. And he speaks right through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is on his way to becoming a believer. Do you know that? It's going to take some more work on it on, by God on his life. And then these three young Hebrew men are elevated and given increased positions of authority in Babylon. Why? If you're faithful with a little, you can be trusted with more. We're storing up treasure in heaven, beloved. This is a training ground for the next life. With whatever God has entrusted into your hand, be faithful with it today. Don't necessarily look for promotion in this life. The promotion comes in the next. That's our home. That's what we're looking for. We're just passing through here. We're just passing through. Pray with me. Father, I pray that for each one of us, as we're confronted by our own fiery furnace, especially in these end days of this 20th century, Lord, as we face one of two possible outcomes, I pray, Lord, that we could learn to say with reality and by your grace, we do not need to defend ourselves. The God we serve is able to save us. He's able to rescue us from the hand of the evil. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Lord, I pray that this would be a powerful reality in all of our lives that we would be people truly who are for your kingdom, committed to your kingdom. Lord, each one of us are struggling. Each one of us are in that process. We're all at different points on that continuum line. But Lord, we are confident of this thing, that the good work that you have begun, you will bring to completion. 
and you desire us to cooperate with you. You desire us to submit to you, trust in you, no matter what. Lord, that our life could be a testimony and a witness for those who are observing. And Father, we confess you, we don't know who's observing. But you've got us planted so that we might bear fruit that other people could see and glorify you. We give you thanks this morning. Lord, strengthen us as we come to your table now. Encourage our hearts. Give us insight and understanding, spiritual understanding. Father, once again, perspective for our lives that Jesus indeed would be the center of our life. Thank you, Lord. Amen? Amen. Ushers, would you... This little piece of cracker in this cup of juice, this is what it's all about. These are the reminders. And this time together is a reminder. It's why we gather together. It's why we read this book. It's why we believe what we believe. It's why we walk by faith. We have an insurance and a confidence that Jesus really lived and that he really did die, as the Bible says, and he died for us. That God has mercy on us and he saw us in our painful, sinful, hurtful dilemmas. He saw us lost, swamped by sin. Slaves to it, slaves to the devil, overwhelmed, no hope, no way out, perishing, living in darkness. The Bible says, while we were still God's enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what it's all about. And Jesus, the night before he died, he, he said, I want, you to, I want you to have a meal with me. I want you to break bread with me and, and, and I'm going to give new significance to this bread and to this wine that we're going to drink and, and I want you to tell others about me and, and pass on the significance of this meal because I want you to remember me and so when we receive communion once again it's a time of recentering our focus and our understanding our perspective on Jesus. Who is he? Who is he to me? Is he my savior? Is he my Lord? Is he the one that gave his very last drop of blood for me? And who am I to him? Do I trust him? Does he really have my best interests at heart? Do I trust that? Is he really working in me? I would respond with a resounding yes. Yes. We have that hope and that confidence. We can rest in him.
He is the bread of life. He is the source of our nourishment and our life, our strength. He provides for us all of our needs. Jesus said, this is my body. Take and eat. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to be worthy to come to you. None of us are worthy. But Lord, that you change us and you give true worth to our life. We worship you this morning. Lord, by faith, we look to you, we turn to you, we depend on you for courage and strength, wisdom, power, the ability to endure, the very ability to live faithfully. He took the cup and likewise he blessed it passed it amongst his disciples and he said this cup now is the new covenant in my blood this is a statement that your sins have been washed your sins will have been forgiven you have a no condemnation status with God no matter how many times you fail you have a no condemnation status and God will just keep bringing you back to the same lesson very gracious very patient not like us, short-tempered, impatient with one another. God keeps bringing us back. He says, I've forgiven you. Now let's go back at it again. Let's go back at it again. We're going to get it down. We're going to learn. We're going to continue on in the process. Be confident of that. God is faithful. He says, do this in remembrance of me. I would like to propose a toast to Jesus, our faithful Savior, our faithful Lord, who never leave us and never forsake us, even in the midst of the most terrible fire, seven times hotter than we could imagine. Seems like we're going down for the last time. We're not alone. Jesus, thank you. We toast you. We bless your name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Somebody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right.